Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest has racked up 60-plus years in show business, from off-Broadway to Broadway, small screen to big screen, East Coast to West Coast. He has had a front-row seat to the evolution of the American theater in the latter half of the 20th century. Some of his credits include The Body Beautiful, Frank Lesser's Green Willow, The Fig Leaves Are Falling, which I'm very excited to talk about, uh, Best Foot Forward with Liza Minnelli, Mark Blitzstein's Ruben Rubin with Kay Ballard, and not to mention the TV adaptation of Peter Pan, The Patty Duke Show, and As the World Turns. To tell us what it was like to work with such folks as Madeline Kahn, Christopher Walken, James Whitmore, Elliot Kazan, George Abbott, Stella Adler, and so many more, here's the most talented political science major to ever hit the theater, Edmund Gaines. Ed, how are you today? Great, thank you. We are <laughs> so happy. Here. We are yes. Thank you so much for being here. We are so happy to have you. I, you know, listen. Kevin and I both love the fig leaves are falling. So we're gonna start right there. Tell me, how did you get involved with this show? Well, I auditioned for it mainly because George Abbott was directing it, and he was eighty-one years old at the time. Wow. And I'm thinking, so young for him. And I'm I'm twenty-one, and I'm thinking, oh my god, this is gonna be his last show. Never worked with him, you know. What a privilege. And I got hired to understudy David Cassidy. And uh, David was 18 at the time, and the sweetest kid in the world. Always a really nice guy. And I really, really feel so badly about how things developed later on. Yeah. But David got, we went out of town. Oh, first of all, I, I need to start by saying the book by Alan Sherman, who was a pig, by the way, was... <laughs> Okay, thank you. I was, uh, you know, you, yeah, you hear really, concerts, you hear things about him, and yes, okay. Continue, funny please. man, but oh my God, he was disgusting. Um, the book was hysterical, or we all thought in the cast. I was in the show, but I, you know, I was mainly there to cover David. Right. And uh, we thought it was going to be wonderful. We go to Philadelphia at the Schubert for four weeks, and the show gradually got worse and worse and worse. The um, Barry Nelson was quite good, even though he couldn't sing, and that really didn't hurt him in that part. Dorothy Loudon was fabulous, obviously. 
And the third lead was Jules Munchen, who I'd worked with many times before. Nice, very nice guy, very talented. Opening night in Philadelphia, he ran away with the reviews. And of course, he got fired. He got fired the next day. I heard, I discovered later on that he was fired at the behest of Alan Sherman, who really wanted to play that part. That part was Alan Sherman, Mm. the part of the sidekick. And uh, Abbott would not let that happen. So they brought, put the understudy, Kenny Kimmons on. Kenny went on to have a great career in television. Ken was 26 years old. He was really too young for the part. And he never set foot on stage to rehearse the role because understudies don't get to rehearse until the show opens in New York. So he went on, you know, very gamely, got through it and all that. And he played the rest of the, uh, the rest of the run through to New York. Um, but the show they made, as all Broadway shows do, out of town, they made millions of changes. But even as young performers, we could see that these were not for the better. And by the time we got into town for previews, we really felt demoralized. We went mm-hmm. thinking we had a big hit to knowing, nah, this ain't going to work. And uh, that's what happened. The night of the first preview, David Cassidy got really, really sick. Oh. So I went, I went on with about an hour's rehearsal and got through it, played the next, I can't remember how many previews. David came back for opening night and he was terrific on the, in the show. You know, the show did not suffer with him. He was very good, inexperienced, but a real, a real natural, totally perfect. And uh, he played the next few nights. Um, one of the most memorable memories of that show I have is uh, Dorothy Loudon. The uh, matinee on the last day of the run, she was singing All of My Laughter, the song that had been taken away from uh, Jenny O'Hara in Philadelphia, ended up with Dorothy, and right. Dorothy killed it anyway. So at the matinee, not even that great big house, because the show was closing. Right. Uh, the audience would not stop applauding huh. and the number. They wouldn't stop. I was in the dressing room on the second floor. A bunch of us ran downstairs to see what was going on. We got into the wings on stage right, and it was like, this is at the Broaders Theater. And right. it, they wouldn't stop. And she's lifting her hands up. They wouldn't stop. And she finally got them to stop Oh, because they screamed once more, once more. And she said, okay. And Jack Lee, the conductor, went back to the beginning. She sang the song again. I don't know how many times or if ever that's ever happened on a Broadway musical. And then at the end of the second time, at the end of the second time, more applause. Finally, she stopped it and she said, you made an aging ingenue very happy. (laughs) Oh, wow. I love that. What a great story. only four performances, uh, I think, and she was nominated for a Tony Award for it, for, for Best Featured Actress. Am I... Adam Redfield, uh, William Redfield's son, told me on Facebook that he was at that performance and he witnessed that. And it's real. So it's, it's true. Uh, it's a, it's a real. Gosh, what a legendary. Yeah, yeah that's so yeah. special. You know, another person that we love is Madeline Kahn. You, you, you got to appear on stage with her, correct? Right, Promenade. 
to, okay, now I think you're our first guest who had anything to do with Promenade. Can you tell us a little bit about this show? Oh, there's a lot to tell about. <laughs> can, can you tell us a lot about this show? <laughs> How many hours do you have? For you? Um, I attended a lot of Al Carmine shows at Judson Poets Theater in the Village. And I truthfully did not like them. Not because they weren't good, because the talent he used down there was really amateurish. They were just not good. Um, so when I heard that they were doing Promenade, I, I didn't see Promenade at Judson, but it was like, okay, you know, I had audition for anything. Uh, so I went there and I got it. But you could tell they were really doing an upgraded production. George S. Irving, Shannon Boland, Madeline Kahn, who was not famous at that point. Uh, Alice Gil Clayton, yeah. Alice Clayton, Gilbert Price, Ty McConnell. It was an incredible production. The play itself by Marie Irene Fornes, who was a real kook, uh, is very hard to even decipher um, because it doesn't make a real lot of sense. So that, that comes into one of the most interesting stories that very few people know about. Uh, I've written about it a couple of times on Facebook. All right, the show opens. We're big hit. We open on a Thursday night. Lines around the corner on Friday morning. In those days, people walking into the theater. Lines around the corner. We were a big hit. We had two shows Saturday and two shows Sunday, which was a typical off-boy schedule in those days. And Saturday morning, Larry Whiteley, the stage manager, gets a phone call from Madeline Kahn's mother saying that Madeline was sick and she would not be in for the weekend. Now, that's a real problem because we had no understudies at all. Um, right. And Madeline the largest part in the show. So Larry got us all together and said, we have to do the show. We have four sold-out houses. We couldn't let Edgar Lansbury and Joe Baru down like that. And the show really was hard to follow anyway. So he distributed all of Madeline's numbers and dialogue between the rest oh. of the cast. Okay. It, was, it was like doing Oklahoma without Curly. And the stage manager saying, okay, uh, Ann Eller, you do Surrey with a fringe on top. Okay, Judd, you do... Oh, what a beautiful morning. That's exactly how it was. Oh, wow. So we all we all went out there and sang numbers that we didn't really know. And we got through the show. And we got through the whole weekend. And I remember there used to be a company manager named Dick Grayson, Richard Grayson, who saw one of the performances. And after the show, he stopped me and said, I really didn't. It was wonderful, but I, I didn't really understand the thing. <laughs> and I, I said, I said, you and us both. <laughs> uh, all right. So that night, we had a big Edgar Lansbury do a big party after the Fortunate Weekend. And we're all there. And my wife is there, too. Her name is Pamela Hall. And she was closing just that, I think, right around that time, Into Your World. Right. It started Edgar Lansbury's sister, Angela. Right. So Edgar goes over to her and says, would you learn Madeline's part and go on? And Pamela said, when? He said, Tuesday. Now, this is Sunday night at midnight. So being 21 years old, of course, he said yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, never even, I'd never even seen the show because she had a 
She had her own shows. So she spends the day with Larry Whiteley and several other people, Gilbert Price, Diane McConnell, and, and the musical director, Susan Roman. And that was the hardest part because the music, if you're familiar with the music in Promenade, yes. is that music? I mean, the, the, uh, the number that Madeline has at the end of the first act is kind of like a glitter and be gay number. It's really demanding, intricate, and endless. And she had a lot of numbers. So she learned it, she learned the blocking. She went on Tuesday evening. Now the show, of course, was still this big sensation. That night in the second row was Hal Prince, Stuart Ostro, uh, on two other biggies. I can't remember who right now. Fortunately, Pamela was nearsighted, so she couldn't see them because she knew them all. Uh, <laughs> that would have been terrible if she knew they were sitting right there. And she's just barely figuring out the show. And it went great. Everybody was happy. And Wednesday morning, Madeline recovers. She has a miraculous recovery. She heard what had happened. So she wanted to come back. Joe and Edgar didn't really trust her. So they made a deal and she said, it's too demanding a show. And there, there may be a, an argument for that. They made a deal that she and Pamela would do four shows a week each. And that's how it continued for another couple of months uh, until they both left. And uh, that's the story of Madeline and Promenade and then she was gone. Now, the other interesting thing is that we had an offer to do the, the cast album. I can't remember, I think it was Columbia. They wanted to do a two record set because it was a lot of music. But the cast all decided we needed more than the normal Broadway production salary which was like $150, we wanted more. So we held out for like a thousand, which sounded like a lot of money in those days. And of course, Columbia said, forget about it. So we lost that deal. Finally, they came up with another deal. I think it was Capital, but they were only gonna do one, one record. And we did it at scale. And a lot of the numbers, half the numbers were cut. My two numbers were cut. Mm -hmm. uh, and Madeline and Pamela, neither were there. Now, Ma Pamela's name is on the cover of the album because she was still under contract, but she was on a vacation week. But the understudy, Sandra Schaefer, did the recording. There are several other understudies. Georgia Serving was on a, was on a cruise. Oh. Mark, Mark Allen was in Europe. So their understudies sang the roles and they sped up the album because they were trying to squeeze more, more space in there. And there's one song, Little Fool, where Michael Davis, who was this glorious tenor, he's so speeded up that he, he sounds like Tweety Bird. <laughs> now, now, I think they, they've corrected that on some uh, CDs. Now, 10 years ago, Pamela and I decided to do a benefit of Promenade at uh, New World Stages. We're doing it for the Off Broadway Alliance, so we said, "Oh, this would be great." And I, you know, Leon Embry was my friend, who's the head of Samuel French, so he agreed to let us do it. It had been under option from some Off Broadway theater company, but they let us do it too. And uh, so French gives us the materials, which are indecipherable. I mean, number one, they did not resemble the show we did. They didn't, the lines, the dialogue, the music was incomplete. It was impossible. 
but I was already into it that deep. Pamela was directing it, and she remembered the show. I was in it. I remembered the show. But right. after 40 years, there's only so much you can remember. Fortunately, fortunately, I had audio reel-to-reel tapes of two performances that I had in my garage in California. Now I had a hope that they still worked after 40 years, and they did. So we reconstructed the show with that, with the dialogue, the music, and still I'm, I think Pamela are the only people who know what the show is supposed to be, because mm-hmm. Samuel French certainly doesn't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, I don't know what the hell um, encores did with their version. Yeah. Uh, somebody got me in touch with them about seeing if, if I could assist them. They were like totally uninterested. So I was not going to even go and see it because yeah, no. they, they really had no clue what they were doing. It may have been wonderful, but it wasn't Promenade. It was something with the same title and some of the same music. So that was an interesting experience. Wow. That is and, incredible. Uh, yeah. Full circle. There's a lot of things that go on with these these shows that you don't know about. Even Best Foot Forward had a lot of drama and intrigue. So, oh, yeah, really? Yeah, tell us about Best Foot Forward, please. Okay. Buster Davis was the driving force behind that. Do you know who that was? Oh, yes. He was the music director. He was the musical music director. supervisor, you know, like did the arrangements and stuff. Yeah, he did vocal arrangements. He also was a musical director of Best Foot. He also was right. a co-producer with Arthur Whitelaw. Ah. Uh, Arthur Wilder was his first show. He was 22 years old. Oh, my God. But I had auditioned for Buster in the summer of 62 for something. I don't remember what. And he remembered me. And same thing with Ronnie and Glenn Walken. Ronnie Walken is now Christopher Walken. Right. And Buster was really one of the three of us to play the three male leads in Best Foot Forward. So he really pushed us. And I think he was right because we were damn good. But I, I say so much. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and and um, we had a great time. And I, I knew most of these people because I'd gone to school at the professional children's school with most of them. Glenn Walken was in my class. Uh-huh. Christopher Walken was a few years ahead of me, but I knew him since I was a little kid. Kay Cole was in the show, also from BCS. Gene Castle, also from BCS. Uh, Johnny uh, Johnny Beecher was a replacement also from BCS. So we all knew each other. The one new one, well, one of the new ones was Liza Minnelli, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, they brought her along before rehearsals. And we used to go out and do backers auditions in people's living rooms. Liza, myself, Chris Walken, Glenn, all of us. We did a whole bunch of them. The whole budget for the show was $25,000, cast of 17. But it took a while to raise the money. Yeah. So, okay, so then, we, then we're doing the show. And, uh, you know, we're a modest head, not, not huge, but a modest head we were running. Then Liza left because she was going to go to California to be on the Judy Garland show, the, our TV series. So that's when Arthur brought in Veronica Lake to replace, not Liza, but to replace Paula Wayne, who was playing the older part. So there was some continuity of name value. We're going on with Liza, uh, without Liza, and business was falling off. So this is like September of 63. 
and Arthur decided to close the show. But he, I don't know how he worked it out, but he got Liza to agree to come back for two final weeks. But then there was an awkward moment presented to us by Danny Daniels and Buster Davis. Danny was the director and choreographer. They went to all the cast. They said that Arthur owed them royalties and that they were asking the cast. They, they had put up a closing notice. So now they were putting up what you call a rescindment notice. Because the minute they put a closing notice up, everybody's free. So to continue with the show after the closing date, you have to sign the rescindment notice. That's up there on the billboard. And they asked everybody not to sign it until for pressure until they can negotiate a deal with Arthur. All right, the girls all signed right away, no problem. <laughs> but the guys, we were, I think we were a little more loyal to Buster. Finally, the rest of the guys signed. The last day, that Sunday, our last day, three people hadn't signed. Me, Glenn, and Ronnie Christopher Walken. And we did the two show day, and then everybody had a big overnight party because we were gone. And uh, we felt so awkward and weird about it, but we felt we owed it to Buster and Danny. The next night, Monday, I'm really depressed because I'm at home and there's no show. And I'm, I've left the show that I didn't want to leave. Get a phone call from Buster Davis. He said, don't make any plans for the next two weeks. I said, why, what happened? He said, you may be getting a very nice phone call from Arthur Whitelaw asking you to come back. And I said, okay, then what do we do then? He said, if he does that, that's fine. Because it means that Liza's coming back. Now what happened was they got into Liza and Liza, the story goes, wouldn't come back unless me, Ronnie and Glenn were in the show. And we had a, a glorious sold out last two weeks. And, uh, but you know, even with the simplest of shows, there are all these behind the scenes machinations that nobody knows about. Tell us a little bit about Veronica Lake joining this company. Yeah, well, Arthur had found her. She was a waitress in some diner somewhere in, in the village, I think. And uh, she uh, had a se severe drinking problem. She was only 42 years old, but she looked older because she had, I mean, she had had a rough 10 years or so because 10 years earlier, she was gorgeous, gorgeous. But at 42, she looked, at least to my 16-year-old eyes, she looked like she was 65 or 70. Um, and even looking in the photos, she doesn't look as bad in my memory right now, now that I'm older, but she still was not what you would expect of a gorgeous woman at 42. The bigger problem was that she was depressed, unhappy, and but very sweet, nicest girl in the world. She was from Brooklyn. Her real first name was Connie, Constance. And we called Christopher Walken Ronnie because that was his name. So she said, I don't, I don't want to be confusing. She just called me Connie. So we called Veronica Lake Connie. But there were some nights when we would get on stage and Ronnie and I had a scene where we would walk in from upstate center and, and Ronnie ended up having to do a big dance with her. And we'd go on stage and we could tell that she was all boozed up. And then we would have to improvise because there's no way in the world he could throw around the stage. She'd landed in the audience. So we 
concocted something ourselves. I, I almost got killed in one of those concoctions once. But, you know, nobody held it against her because she was weak and sad. Sometimes she, she seemed to have this boyfriend who was at sea. She used to call, my captain, my captain's coming. I was like, oh my God, drama, drama. But that combined with Liza on the backstage telephone talking to her mother going, oh mama, oh mama, I love you. I love you, mama, mama. You know, yeah. there's a lot of that going on. Sounds like this was an interesting backstage environment for everybody. Oh, it, it certainly was. It certainly was. Now, Ed, how did you get in? I mean, you got started really young in the business. Yeah. How did how did you get started? Did you were, were your parents stage parents, or did you just express an interest and they were supportive? No, my mother got me started, just like just like uh, Christopher Walken's mother, just like Kay Cole's mother, just like everybody else's, and none of us resented it at all. We all had it was the time of our lives. As a matter of fact, I saw um, a TV interview with Christopher Walken not long ago where they were touring his old neighborhood in, in Queens. And uh, the interviewer said to him on camera, so how did you get started in this business? And he said, oh, my, my mother started taking me around to auditions. And so the interviewer thought he had something there, you know? So he said, and how did you feel about that? And Christopher said, it was like shock. He said, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And that's how we all feel. We all feel that way. Yeah. Different different kids grow up in California because California had those do good protection laws that made their lives miserable. We didn't have those laws in New York. I think they do now. So I don't know if I want to have a kid in show business now. But we were we were free and easy. You know, yeah, a lot of us went to professional children's school, but some of us didn't. Bernadette Peters, you know, we I knew her since the age of seven. And she went to school in Queens school work with her that she was out a lot some schools would work with them like that but you know we didn't have to go to some studio school in a dungeon somewhere that was ludicrous mm. um and the first day of rehearsals for the tv version of peter pan we rehearsed in the old helen Hayes theater across the street from the lunt we rehearsed in the morning and nbc had sent a studio teacher even though we'd never seen one in New York, and the studio teacher said to us, okay, now you can't go anywhere until your mothers show up to take you to lunch. And we all laughed. I remember Luke Halpin, who later started Flipper. I remember Luke laughing real loud going, well, we got a long way because they ain't coming. <laughs> and, then, and then we just walked west down 46th Street to 8th Avenue. And last I remember turning at one point and watching her wave at us. We never saw her again. <laughs> don't mess with the new york kids let's talk about this this peter pan experience tell us how did you get involved with this audition like any like usually happens um less intrigued there if you want unless you want to talk about the inside casting that happened on a couple of occasions yeah um, tell us about that if you watch the show there's one little boy nice little boy but he not not an actor not a performer no experience who's mm -hmm. like seven or eight and i don't know whose relative he was but they threw him in the show playing the role of toodles one of the lost boys and toodles has a lot of lines which they had to take away from him luke alpa got most of toodles lines and if you watch the ugga number 
he's he's out there and he's going in the wrong direction you know it's oh it's right. hard to watch and there was one other child who turned out to be very good the son of the actor in Bramwell Fletcher Ken Fletcher who played uh, Michael and he was very good uh but and then the boy who played John was an old friend of mine he was a client of John Ross who was Patty Duke's manager with all I'm sure you've heard all those stories. No, actually, no, no, we haven't. Oh, my God. I thought this was really well known. Well, let me get back to that. Sure. Somehow, John John placed Michael in this. uh, Joey Trump was an actor, but he was a tough New York kid. And to have him play the English accented John did not work that well. But there he was. Oh, and the other thing about Peter Pan, we spent two weeks filming the scenes in the Darling uh, Nursery at the the old uh, Ziegfeld Theater on 6th Avenue, 54th Street. And uh, that's the first act of the show before they go to Neverland. And then the very end, when they come back from Neverland, the Lost Boys are with them. Then we go to the Brooklyn Studios to do the bulk of the show. And we pretty much did that in about two or three days because it was a threat of a strike from after. So we did that show pretty much on one take and there are still glitches. You can see it. You see Mary Martin blow lyrics when she's singing with Jackie Mayro near the end of the show. Uh, When we're building the house for Wendy, the roof collapses. They couldn't go back and redo it. They worked until three, 4 a.m. that night. And then after all that, there was no strike. So the strike, again, protected us out of $400 a week for about three or four weeks. Let me just say we over to Patty Duke. Yeah. Okay. When I was when I was seven years old, I signed with this man. My mother signed with this manager, John Ross. And he had like one kid of each type. And he had a girl very much like Patty Duke named Judy Sanford. And he got us a lot of work. We did commercials, we did TV together, et cetera. And then Judy's mother left him. And then my mother, we just weren't happy with it because he he was like too controlling. So then mm. he replaced he replaced me with Joey Trent, who I ended up working with him, Peter Pan. And he replaced Patty with, I mean, he replaced Judy Sanford with Patty Duke, Anna Marie Duke whose mother was this very mild, gentle woman who just let him do what he wanted. I mean, he used to have her doing errands for him. She was sending out her submissions, even while her daughter was starring on Broadway. Patty had to move in with him. She lived with him. There were a lot of potential allegations of improprieties. Yeah, it sounds she, like it. She details them in, in, her, in her autobiography. And so I still work with Patty a lot because we ended up, you know, in those days there were a lot of live TV shows. So we did a lot. I can't even remember most of them. And IMDb doesn't have most of them. So I can't even remember. And were well, most we, of them live? It was it was shot live. Is that correct? The, I mean, in the, I mean, in the, in the, in the 50s, it was pretty much all live. That's what I thought. Okay. Sorry, not, 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 not filmed sitcoms like from Hollywood, but pretty much everything in New York was live. Right, the variety shows, yeah. Variety shows, the uh, the dramas, 
Yeah. One hour, two hour dramas, everything was live. Uh, Peter Pan 60 was the first one on videotape. Uh, all right, so we did, we did a lot of this live stuff. I mean, I was on Sid Caesar's Hour all live. That's another story. Yeah. But to finish Patty, um, you know, we all knew each other. We went to school near each other. We all worked frequently with each other. And then she finally gets around to doing the Patty Duke show, where her manager, John Ross, was one of the producers. And all the kids I know on the Patty Duke show, except Except me. And I found out later that he was keeping me out of it. But the uh, casting director was Joe was Joan Dincheco, who was also who was also one of the producers on Best Foot Forward. So she finally rocked the boat and got me on it. So I did about eight segments of the Patty Duke show after that. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, but he, um, he was difficult for a while. And then, of course, he died very suddenly in the summer of 1970. And I happened to be in Hollywood at the time. And... Patty took out full-page ads in his memory and, and put my all the kids' names who used to be with him. Joey Trent, me, a couple of others. I mean, we've only heard great things about her being such a class act, and I think that just exemplifies yeah. exemplifies that. You you had mentioned uh, Sid Caesar doing uh, yeah. the Sid... Was it your show of shows or the Sid Caesar hour? No, Which one? no show of shows was a little before my time. That was the yeah. early 50s. Mm-hmm. His next series, the uh, Sid, Sid, Sid Caesar Hour, the Caesar Hour, was in the 56, 57, 58. It was also live down at the old Century Theater, which was at the corner of 59th and 7th. Oh, wow. The interesting thing, they were all sketches, and it was, you know, the, the usual cast. No Imogen Coca, but we had Carl Reiner and Howie Morris. And for the women, there was Nanette Fabray. Pat Carroll, um, others. Uh, I did a lot of those segments, usually with Bernadette Peters and others. And the interesting thing about it was Sid did not rehearse the sketches. There was a comedian named Milt Kamen, who was pretty well known on television, but he was Sid Stanton. So Milt used to rehearse all the sketches with us for three or four days. Then finally, we'd go in in front of a studio audience live to do the show with Sid for the first time. And he would change everything. He would 
throw things around, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I remember once there was one sketch where I was supposed to, uh, he was supposed to pick me up and carry me up the stairs to bed or something like that. And he whirled around, he put me in the sink. I mean, those are the kind of things. He started, I remember he was supposed to give us food, but he, he, he took the ladle and he flung everything all over the, our faces on the floor. People were slipping and sliding. He was a genius, but you have to realize the Sid Caesar of that day is not the Sid Caesar that most people remember. They remember the more recent Sid Caesar. It was kind of a slight, you know, quiet guy. And he wasn't big. He was very pretty thin. Sid Caesar in the 50s, you had to go back and look. He was a big, hulking guy. He was like 6'2". And the closest thing I can think of, my memory of the real Sid, was Joe Bologna in my favorite year. Uh, when I saw my favorite year. It was like, yeah, that's the way it was like. It was craziness. You didn't know what was going to happen on that set. And Sid was was on every drug in the world in those days. I read his autobiography later, and he was totally hopped up. He didn't know he didn't know half of what he was doing. But he cleaned up later. But I guess what made him such a smash was all that combination of things. So he was crazy and. Uh, I watched that movie, my favorite year, and people think, "Oh, that can't, that's can't be, you know, real." It's a wild exaggeration. I go, "No, that's pretty much how I remember it." <laughs> you know. This is Lucille. Do you want to help keep Broadway behind the curtain on the air? Head over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. And search Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar. Just tell them, here you come, pow, pow. Light the candles. Get the ice out. I'm going to sing until you give. Roll the rug up. Give today at Patreon. What was your Broadway debut? Uh, Reuben Reuben, which closed in Boston at the Schubert by Mark Blitzstein, starring Eddie Albert, mm. Kay Ballard, and George Gaines, no relation. The great George Gaines. Right. And uh, he was very nice to me. He was terrific. Um, the show, <laughs> funny stories about that show. Yeah. Robert Lewis was the director, and he was... You know, he went back to the group theater, the theater guild and all that. And he was very temperamental. And this is a cast of 50 people, like most old-fashioned musicals were. And I was eight years old. Um, and he would throw a fit maybe every two weeks in rehearsals. We rehearsed at an abandoned warehouse uh, where Lincoln Center is now called Schumer's Theatrical Transfer on 67th Street, west of Broadway. And uh, he would get up and walk out, stomp out of the rehearsal. And then the cast would get together in a circle, sitting in a circle. And he would be lured back in the middle of the circle while the cast all said, we'll do better, we'll try harder, we'll work harder, including Eddie Albert. And this happened two or three times. So at my first Broadway show, I'm thinking, this is the norm. Never happened again. 
But then we get to Boston. Oh my God. Somebody sent me a, a live performance tape of it, which I only partly listened to. Uh, and it was, it was kind of like pre-Lloyd Webber because it was mostly an opera. It was not very much dialogue. It was pretty much sung through. Right. But I remember people started leaving, wa- walking out during the first scene. And then my favorite part of it, and this is a story that I thought I may have misremembered because I was so young, but then it got validated when I read the same story in Hanya Holmes' autobiography. Near the end of the show, Eddie Albert plays opposite a lady named Evelyn Lear, who became a pretty well-known opera singer. And he sings to her this line, if they let us, we'd start all over again. And people in the audience would go, no, no, don't. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's vitriol. I mean, that is like, (laughs) that's active dislike. I told this story to people and they started me. I started doubting my memory because no. Yeah. But then one day I'm in a bookstore and I see Hanya Holmes. It's like 25 years ago. Yeah. Hanya Holmes biography. So I looked up the Ruben Ruben section and she said that very thing. That's a great wow. but horrible story at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. But Eddie Albert was a prince. Eddie Albert was a prince. He made sure that he did a lot of TV dramas in those days after that. Mm-hmm. And he made sure that every time. He did a, a drama. If he had the role of a son, I was always hired. So I did about eight TV dramas with a, Eddie playing his son. Oh, wow. What a kindness. What a yeah. kindness. And would you consider him a mentor of yours? Well, I, I, I can't say that. I mean, I mean, in a way, I mean, he was a wonderful actor. He was a wonderful person. He was very friendly to, to everybody. And, uh, but I, I didn't really see him again after I was like fourteen. But you would, but you would consider somebody like James Whitmore a mentor, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. Can you James, tell us? A, yeah, tell us about yeah. your relationship with James Whitmore, please. Well, I met Jim and Audra Lindley, who uh, when I first met them, they weren't married yet, but they were they were together, but they weren't married yet. I got hired. I auditioned for, and I got hired for a play that was being done in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They had a professional theater program at that point. And the play was an original play called The Conjurer. I played Jim's son and his young, young version of himself. And, you know, that was like a two-year, two-week run, um, limited run. And we all got along wonderfully. And we and Jim was living in New York at the time. And then we communicated in New York when we got back into town. And uh, didn't work with him, but I would run into him. Uh, things like that. There was communication. Um, He later became the, uh, he had order with the godparents to to my first daughter. I have a theater in LA called the Whitmore Lindley Theater Center that I built, that I named after them. It's been there about 22 years. Uh, Now, the next time I worked with Jim, it happened like this. I used to be a really good, I'm not so much good about it now, about reading the trade papers. I'd read Variety and The Hollywood Reporter every day. So I'm living in Hollywood, but I went to New York. We still had an apartment in New York. So I went to New York, Pamela and I went to New York for, this is like in January of 76. And I get a call from Gordon Hunt, who's the casting director at the Mark Taper Forum. 
uh, and Peter Hunt's brother, Peter Hunt, who just passed away, the director. And I get a call from Gordon thinking I'm in LA and he said, I'd like you to come in and audition for uh, the Magnus Yankee tomorrow. I said, oh God, I wish I could, I can't. And then he said, well, okay, I'll remember next time. And just as he was about to go off the phone, I remembered that I'd read that, that, that James Whitmer and Audrey Lindley were doing a play called The Magnificent Yankee. So I stopped him and said, well, wait a minute, is this the play with Jim and Audra? And he said, yeah. I said, well, could you ask, maybe they can hire me without me having to come in because they know me. I had not worked with Peter Hunt though, the director. And Gordon said, well, I, I probably not. I don't think so, but well, I'll see. He calls me the next day and he said, yeah, they said they'd love to have you in the show. So we drive back out to LA, go right in rehearsals. And that was all because I read the trade papers. Uh, and then we did that show for Lauderdale, Florida, Huntington Hartford Theater. And then we did it at the Kennedy Center right during the bicentennial in 76. And that cast became such a family that we were having reunions almost until uh, Whitmore died. He had this beautiful house in Trancas, part of Malibu. And we would have all these full cast reunions. I've never seen a cast like that. You know, most shows you retain one or two or three lifelong friends, but not, but not the majority. This show, the camaraderie. And I told an actor right now named Randy Pellish, who's retired and living in Reno and he's very ill. And I talked to him on the phone every now and then. And he was saying, he was saying, Ed, you told me 43 years ago that I was not likely to ever experience a production like this where everybody loved each other so much. And he said, and you're right, the rest of my life, never had that experience again. And neither have I. So it was it was a special time. Jim and Audrey were very, very, you know, special to us. And uh, they're gone now. But I'm in touch with his son, Jim Whitmore Jr., who's a TV director, and and Jim Jr.'s daughter, Alia Whitmore. They've done shows at my at my Whitmore Lily Theater in L.A. So we we still maintain some contact. What a great relationship that you cultivated out of that. That's just fantastic. What um when you were auditioning, what was your go-to audition song? <laughs> well, that depended. When I was a teenager, it was Johnny One Note. Because you can't tell from my voice now because I, I had a severe injury here. No, I seriously I had a severe injury years ago that damaged my vocal cords. So that's when my oh. voice so but I was I have to say, modestly, a terrific singer. And I used to blow people away with that Johnny One note. As a matter of fact, Christopher Walken, I ran into him at a, at a memorial, funeral memorial in LA, maybe 12, 13 years ago. And he starts in going, Johnny One note, Johnny One note, Johnny One note. I love that. And the first thing he thought of was Johnny One note. Um, so I, I said, I can't sing Johnny one out anymore. <laughs> and if you, if you don't mind my asking when you're discussing, um, your, your vocal cords, was that from the car accident you were involved in? Yeah. Hit and run. I'm on the four or five freeway in LA in San Diego and I'm heading home and it's three, three 30 in the afternoon. And all of a sudden 
My car is flying through the air. I have no control over the embankment, crash down a hill, crash sideways into a tree. Uh, what happened was somebody had sideswiped the car further back, was trying to get away. So he pulled around this school bus where I was to the right on the slow lane. So I was getting off and he didn't know I was there and he hit me from behind at 90 miles an hour, making me a rocket ship. And uh, I thought, as, as I'm going down this hill at blurring speed, I'm thinking, no way I'm gonna survive this. I get down, car stops, the whole half of the car right behind my head is crushed in. And the roof, I had a little Porsche and the roof was dislodged. So there was an open roof. I see a guy, I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I lived through this. And I see a guy climbing down the side of the hill. Turned out later that he was an off-duty fireman. Mm. And um, I went to try to stand up. So I went to try to do, undo my seatbelt, but I felt weak. So I tried harder again and I got the seatbelt undone. I stood up in the car, there was no roof. And I went to yell help and then nothing came out silence and that's the same dream i used to have when i was a little kid that i was running for help and it really happened i can't believe it actually happened and then i knew something was very wrong and all of a sudden then my head starts going numb the numbness goes right down my head to my chest and my last thought was this is it i'm dead and i was as close to dead as possible uh, there was an off-duty search and rescue worker who also saw me go over. And they came to help me. My, my uh, the trachea was was about 80% severed. And I, and I found that when that happens, you go into, into cardiac arrest. So I'm lying there, you know, in cardiac arrest. And this off-duty fireman and mainly the... Uh, search and rescue guy are trying to help me. They're blowing air into my mouth and they, they discover it's coming out my neck and they can't get my heart started. But fortunately that there were no cell phones in those days, it was 1982. Uh, the school bus I mentioned had one of those walkie talkie, you know, Broderick Crawford things. And they called for an ambulance. So the ambulance showed up with the defibrillator. They were able to get my heart started, but it kept stopping and starting and starting. I was at the side of the road for like four hours. They finally got me to Vestley Presbyterian Hospital in Van Nuys. And uh, they called my wife at that point. She was wondering where I was, but they told her to get over here fast because we don't expect them to live the night. So amazingly enough, I did. Uh, but the lesson on that was I had a parade of doctors come through with the bad news. The first one was the pulmonologist because I had a lot of injuries to my chest and my arms. And uh, he told me, well, you know, in time, it's gonna take a lot of rehabilitation, but you'll, you know, you'll be able to function again. Then I get the neurosurgeon and he goes, well, you know, there's a lot of damage because I was without oxygen for a long time. It's like having a stroke. And uh, he said, you should regain most of your use. Then I get the ear, nose, and throat guy. This was the devastating one. 
because he said, okay, we're gonna have to operate to repair the trachea, but it's not an operation that's ever done because you're a miracle that you're actually living to do it. And of course, I'm breathing through a tracheotomy at that point. And he said, this is gonna be the process, we're experimenting. He said the trachea theoretically heals by uh, compaction. So we're concerned that you might have to have a permanent tracheotomy and never be able to speak again. But if that's what it takes for you to live, you know, that's what you have to be. So I got this bad news and uh, I'm glad he told me that. I'm glad he didn't tell me that like most of the other doctors, I'd be back to normal because I obviously wasn't gonna be singing high seas anymore. Oh, and I just left the tour of Annie that I'd been in right. for two years. You know, weeks go by, recovery process. And then finally, they let me, they close the tracheotomy so that I can actually talk. And I could barely whisper. I mean, it was like this. But you know what? I was thrilled because I thought, because they had told that they told me right. that I might never speak at all. Right. And the interesting thing is, in these days before computers and cell phones and any of that stuff, I had somehow figured out how I was going to be a producer without being able to talk. And I figured it out. And I was totally confident about going forward with it. I was okay with it. I don't remember what I was thinking. I don't remember how I thought I was going to do this, but I was confident I was going to do it. But when I was able to speak, I, you know, I went away from that model, but I was, I don't know what I was going to do, but I was, I was confidently going to go forward, acquiring theaters and producing shows within six months. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. And then yeah. what what was the motivator in terms of going into producing as opposed to, say, you know, directing or writing? Well, I didn't think I had the patience to be a director. Um, <laughs> that's just not what I can do. But I always wanted to produce. My first thought about producing was ironically back during the run of The Body Beautiful, Bach and Harnick show at the Broadway Theater. And I remember there was a call, used to be a coffee shop across the street from the Broadway called uh, The Colony, 53rd and Broadway. And there's a, bank of, there's a Bank of America there now. And I was sitting there with my mother and uh, another one of the kids, uh, Alan Weeks, who went on to have a very good Broadway career later on. He just passed away too. And uh, yeah. I remember thinking, um, I want to, I say, I remember saying, when I grew up, I'm going to produce this show because we loved the show. We thought it was fabulous. And uh, that was my thought. That was my first thought about producing. And then when I did grow up, it was a Samuel French show. And I got a copy of the script. And even though a lot of it was good and the score was terrific, I said, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> so that fantasy was gone. But that was my first thought. And I had actually done a little bit of producing before my, I had my injuries. I co-produced um, a quasi-Broadway off-Broadway review in 1976 called La Belly Button, starring Marilyn Chambers, a friend of oh. mine who got me involved with it. And I just made a couple of phone calls, raised some money, and boom, we're in the business. <laughs> <laughs> we opened during a newspaper strike, so the show never got reviewed. 
and I'm sorry, Ed, was this in Los Angeles or New York? Oh, that's New York. That's a New York one with Marilyn Chambers. That's a yeah. I wouldn't have thought about that. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't really come up. I like that. I'm glad it did. <laughs> so, Ed, when you started producing theater in Los Angeles, and we're talking about the mid-1980s now, what was the theater scene in Los Angeles like? It was actually pretty busy. I mean, there was, there was a lot of theater, not as much as there is now, but I think the quality was probably better then. I had been on Equity Council, which is the Equity Board of Directors in the 70s, and I fought pretty hard for... Um, LA to have the equity waiver plan or the equity 99C plan as it came to be known later. Whereas most of the New York, you know, hierarchy did not want that. And so I flourished under that. And um, I always had theaters. That was the first step I realized you're just producing without a theater of your own is much harder because you're at the mercy of the landlords, the rents, and other bookings, et cetera. And I did produce at other people's theaters in, on many occasions. But as I started to accumulate theaters, it, it became much easier. Um, and we did very well. I mean, boy, we had a lot of run, long running shows. We had shows that went to equity contracts, to full equity contracts that played, that moved to bigger theaters, that ran for two years at a time number of them so you knew quite early on though that the only way to really succeed in this is to actually own the building yourself um, well that helps that helps as a producer yeah how many uh buildings did you acquire throughout your time uh well in la in, in, i i leased a place called the night flight theater terrible name from michael shirtliff who was a legendary casting director acting teacher who i'd known since he was the casting director in the original Gypsy in 1958. Um, and then um, I acquired the West End Playhouse. And then I acquired a theater called Center Stage. And West End got destroyed by the 94 earthquake. I then took over a theater called the Two Roads Theater in Studio City. Center Stage had to close for other unrelated reasons. And then I built the Whitmore Lindley Theater Center. Which, which is located where in Los Angeles? That, that's in North Hollywood. And NoHo, okay. In the NoHo Theater District. I now have two other theaters in NoHo, the Brick House Theater and the Avery Schreiber Playhouse. And everything is shut down. Everything is shut uh, yeah. down. Not earning a nickel. Uh, just spending money. So oh, that's, that's an ugly story, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but that that was a good business strategy, and it's something I co carried over to New York, because when I started bringing shows from L.A. to New York, I didn't have my own theater, and I was renting theaters, the Lambs Theater, you know, the Players Theater, the Actors Play Actors Playhouse, various other right. theaters, and then I was fortunate enough to acquire St. Luke's Theater, right on Forty Sixth Street near Joe Allen's. And that made all the difference in the world. Mm. And shortly, shortly after, I opened the Actors Temple Theater on 47th Street. So that gave me a lot of flexibility. And uh, I devised uh, new way, methods of producing because the old methods didn't work anymore. The old you expand on that? Yeah, see, I mean, that's for four, $25,000. 
gas to 17. Promenade, $45,000, gas to 15. I was in a, a revival of Johnny Johnson. Gas must have been 25 or 30. Yeah, huge. That's one directed by Stella Adler. But, you know, the salaries, $37.50, $45, et cetera. Although people were supporting families on that in those days. The problem was now it got to the point where the average off-Broadway show is costing over a million dollars. And the business is just not there. I, I watch people produce shows in New World Stages and the West Side. And even if they gross 30, 40,000 a week, they're losing 30, 40,000 a week. And they go in for millions and millions. And I produced several shows that all got terrific reviews. Everybody loved them, but we lost money. And I got tired of that scenario. Mm -hmm. And then when I acquired St. Luke's, I rented to a production, a one-person show starring a comedian named Judy Gold. It's called 25 Questions for a Jewish Mother. Mm -hmm. And one-person show, and they did great business and they still lost money. It was like, what's what's wrong with this picture? So I remember back when I was producing in California, I produced a, a summer season in Orange County um, at two different theaters. And I used a contract that was local to that area at that time called the Periodic Performance Agreement. But it specifically said it was not to be used in New York. Well, I went to Equity in New York, and New York and Equity in New York is a lot more accommodating than Equity in California. I'll tell you that. So I went to the Equity in New York, and they let me use it in New York. And the first show I did was a two-character musical called Danny and Sylvia, the Danny Kane musical. And Pamela directed it. And it was a show that we threw together real fast because I had an empty theater. <laughs> and it ran for three years. Yeah. <laughs> it only closed because the guy playing Danny was leaving and I couldn't find anybody who could really pull off that part. Right. So since then, we've done a lot of other productions in that way. I have, a, I brought a show from LA called Black Angels Over Tuskegee at the Tuskegee Airmen in World War right. II. I ran that for a year at the Whitmore Lindley and it's been running now in New York for 10 years. Only, only a few times a week now because we book it all over the country. But that's all that it's needed to maintain its presence and its visibility. And now other people have copied me. And most of the shows in my theaters right now are not mine. They're, they're um, outside tenants. But they're all using my method. They're all using the same contract. And there's a musical called Sisters. It's been running for nine years. That's right. Yeah. And... Uh, my big gay Italian wedding ran for five, six years. There were others, long runs. So it's a model that works. And more and more people are using it. It's There are people who shy away from it for not good reasons. And uh, they've all been, I mean, we all were experimenting. We didn't know. First question was, well, good actors want to do three or four shows a week. We found out they'd rather do three or four shows a week. Because you know what? Doing eight shows a week is a lot of work. Uh, and then when a show would age and we cut the number of performances from three to two to even one to make it stay in profit, it was like, oh, well, will they stay? Well, yeah, they stayed. 
they're gonna they're only gonna leave if they have another show. Right. And they're gonna leave if they have another show, even if you're doing eight shows a week. That's not they're not gonna say, Oh, I'm turning down this Broadway show because I'm doing eight shows a week. It doesn't work that way. I was right. an actor. I, I was very bad about that. I left shows. As soon as I got something else, I left. I was it's not something I want to hear as a, as a producer, but I was always ready to go on to the next show. What would you like to see changed about uh, the off-Broadway model in the next 10 or 15 years or so? I don't know if we're going to have an off-Broadway model. I mean, I'm really... Yeah. If, if, they, if they really think that there's social distancing in theaters, they got another thing coming because it ain't going to happen because nobody can operate. They'll have, maybe they'll have amateur productions, school productions. There's no professional theater anymore. And that goes for Broadway, too. Yeah. Do you think that this is really not going to end until there's either a vaccine or um, a medication that can be given? I mean, that's that's pretty much I it, right? Know. I don't know. I mean, I think they've scared the shit out of everybody. Um, I'm one of these people. You know what? I'd rather take my chances and live because, you know what? This isn't living right now. Right. I'm not enjoying this. What are you doing to keep yourself occupied during the day? Um, I'm still, you know, working on, on there are still people in discussions with me about rentals. Sure. I'm dealing, I'm dealing with people about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're dealing with so many unknowns. We don't know when, et cetera, under, under what conditions. Um, the theater community in LA has been very active about trying to get some local government help. Mm -hmm. So we've had a lot of a lot of long Zoom meetings there, and actually we've gotten some some assistance from uh, um, one of the city council offices that's helping us. Theoretically, we don't have a jet. Theoretically, helping us with rent utilities, um, and um, just the normal everyday things of you know we looked into all these different federal programs. The PPA doesn't work for us because 75% of our income is not, of our costs are not payroll. It's mostly rent. And if you give it as rent, it's not forgivable. You know, and yeah. we can't, none of us are going to take on loan, big loans. That ain't going to happen because we'll, we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to pay them back. Mm -hmm. So we just have to rely on the kindness of our landlords to work with us. Okay. And then hope, hope we can reopen in a feasible way. Yeah. Now, I, I read some article yesterday where Cleveland Playhouse was talking about operating with 30 seats, 400 I seats. I saw that. Well, I mean, that's fairyland. That's just fantasy. How are you going to make money? How are you going <laughs> to? It's hard enough to make money with all your seats. Exactly. <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. What a what a time. Um, yeah. But Ed, you know, if, if there's a bright side to any of this, it gave us time to speak to you today. And I can't yeah. tell you how much we we appreciate your, right. you know, taking the time out and, you know, walking us through this incredible journey. I hope you're going to mm -hmm. write a book at some point or I, I actually actually am um, good. I got I got approached with a publishing deal a few years ago and I actually started and I got to like the age of 18. And then I got so busy with business that I God about it and with this situation with these with the time more time free i just posted on facebook uh last week that, okay i'm gonna go ahead and do it so yep. i'm great already started 
to redo it. Good. Well, Fantastic. we cannot we cannot wait to read it, and when it's all ready to go, come back on. We can we can promote it. But Ed, thank you so much for taking time. You're and welcome. a big and a big thanks to our friend Carl Danielson who introduced us. I mean, oh yeah. sure, of course. He's 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 yeah. the best. He's the best. Ed, take care of yourself. Uh, we we all wish right. you nothing but you and your wife good health. And thank you so much for today. It's been a pleasure. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. All right. Till next time, everyone. Bye bye. Bye, listeners. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.